Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Midnight Myth Time Machine. We're publishing our back catalog week by week to make it available on your favorite podcast platforms. What you're about to hear is episode 9B, Take This Ring, which originally aired in March of 2017. In the second half of our first foray into discussing J.R.R. Tolkien's massive Lord of the Rings universe, we dive into the mythological precedent for magic rings and rings of power. So hop in the time machine with us and enjoy episode 9B, Take This Ring. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all. And And in in the the darkness, darkness, find find them. them. In the land of Mordor, where shadows lie. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, episode 9B. Uh, What was the name of it again? Take this ring. Take this ring. As you may have guessed from our our intro, we're going to continue and springboard a little off of last week where we sort of started talking about the world of Middle Earth, the world that J.R.R. Tolkien, writer of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbits, uh, created. And we want to go into it a little more. And we realized in that entire episode, there's a big thing we forgot to mention. Yeah, we forgot to mention the titular piece of jewelry. <laughs> titular. Yeah. <laughs> Podcast over. <laughs> podcast ended. Uh, yeah, Sorry, we, we did an entire Lord of the Rings podcast without mentioning the Ring of Power or any of the rings in the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, and so we, we realized that we can't really let that stand and consider ourselves having done an adequate job to the mission of the Midnight Myth, <laughs> which is to understand and explore universal themes of storytelling. So we wanted to start talking about the One Ring of Power. So I think the idea was maybe give a brief synopsis in the history of the ring, why it's important, why it matters, um, and not go into too much detail there, and then jump into analysis of it. And we had some other things we wanted to talk about, too, in terms of the legacy of Lord of the Rings. Um, if we have time, we can get into that as well. Sound good? 
Sounds great. Do you want to give a brief history of the ring? Oh, you know I love history. Yeah. History of the ring. Here it comes. So in, I believe it was the first age, uh, there was this dude named Sauron. Sauron is, uh, I don't know if his race is ever defined, but he is a sort of, if you're playing Dungeons and Dragons, he's like a battle mage. And he is the protege of the kind of dark lord of the Silmarillion, who is the character Melkor, who kind of fell from grace. We talked about him last episode. He fell kind of like Lucifer and became more goth. He's sort of a Satan character who kind of gives formation to the the evil that is Sauron. Right. He needs an apprentice, which is Sauron. So Sauron, in this time, there were the forging of the great rings of power. Um, so nine are given to men, three to elves, seven to famous dwarven lords. And Sauron's just like, well, I can't be outdone by all these other people. So he makes the one ring and it is considered the ring of power. Uh, there's a great battle between Sauron and his forces and the man and men and elves in which the ring from this character, Asildur, the king of Gondor, right. who is pretty much Gondor is the biggest, most powerful, badass king of dudes. Uh, he cuts the ring off of Sauron's hand. Sauron's life force immediately disappears and the, he decides to keep the ring. But here's the, the thing with the ring, which we'll get to in analysis, is that it's it's very evil. And it brings out evil in people. Yeah. And it wants to be wielded only by Sauron. So it ends up betraying Isildur, and then it ends up being disappeared into a river. Right. Uh, Of course, it can't stay buried for long. Nothing can. Uh, So a ring that powerful sitting at the bottom of the river is, of course, picked up by a character known as Smeagol. Uh, you may know Smeagol later as Gollum. Yeah, and Smeagol and his buddy, who they're considered river folk, so they're like the pre-Hobbit hobbits. Yeah, they're they're hobbity. Yeah, they're pretty much hobbits before hobbits were cool, and <laughs> they're hipster hobbits, and they fight for the ring in which Smeagol kills Deagle. Yeah, Smeagol, which Deagle. is his official fishing buddy. He gets exiled from the river folk for Pour being one a murderer. Out for Deagle, though, right? Yeah. Now the ring does a few things to people who aren't Sauron. When Smeagol puts it on, he immediately disappears. It's one gold band. Now, if it's ever put in fire, there is an inscription on it, which we quoted at the beginning of the episode, which is about it's one ring to rule them all. And um, that only sees, yeah, when you burn it. And it extends the life of the bearer of the ring. So Smeagol takes it deep into an area of, of Middle Earth called the Misty Mountains. Right. So it's a mountain range in Middle Earth. And he lives there for presumably thousands of years. Yeah. And is immortal, and the ring just poisons his mind until we get to The Hobbit, in which Bilbo Baggins, who is traveling with a bunch of dwarves and Gandalf, and they want to slay a dragon and win lots of treasure, it's pretty awesome, meets this Gollum character named Gollum, because every time he coughs, he goes, Gollum, Gollum. That's my impersonation. I'm really glad you demonstrated that. Yeah, Absolutely. I'm 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 a pro. I'm I'm very dedicated. Yeah. Long story short, Bilbo takes the ring from him, uses its its power to when he puts it on as a non-Sauron, he ends up just being invisible, uses this to help defeat Smog the Dragon. Right. He goes back home to his home in the Shire, which is the realm where the hobbits live. He decides it's time for me, this is where the Lord of the Rings start. It's time for me to essentially retire. I want to leave the Shire because 
I'm this famous traveling clever hobbit and I don't like living around all these other hobbits. I'm going to go live with elves and dwarves and whatnot. And Gandalf convinces him, Gandalf the wizard, we mentioned him last week, is like the wizard of the Lord of the Rings, convinces him to give the ring to Frodo under the suspicion that this ring might be the ring of power. Right. It turns out it is. And then the Lord of the Rings saga is simply about Frodo, Bilbo's nephew, um, taking the ring from the Shire to Mordor, which is the, the realm of Sauron, the realm of evil, and the only place that it can be destroyed, which is in the volcanic underbelly of Mount Doom, where the ring was forged. To quote uh, the, the movie and the books, it must be cast into the fiery chasm from whence it came. Yeah. And then the War of the Rings is the war in which Gondor, Rohan, they all band together. So the realm of Aragorn and, and Edoras and Theoden, they all get together and they fight Sauron as a cover so Frodo can sneak the ring into Mordor and ultimately destroy it. That was an excellent summary. Of, Some, summary of the of, ring. Yeah, how the ring gets uh, gets from person to person, gets from owner to owner, uh, which is a huge I think a huge defining characteristic of the ring is it's kind of uh, yearning to get back to its master. And so it, it's kind of passed down by deception or by, uh, by trickery or accident. Or, yeah. Or accident yeah. or violence. Oh yeah. Violence. Big, big theme there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a really, really interesting uh, symbol there in, in the Lord of the Rings, but it might not surprise you to learn that the Lord of the Rings was not the first story to contain a magic ring. Wait, wait. Tolkien didn't invent that? So, <laughs> Tolkien didn't invent pretty much anything. Uh, I am I am ashamed and shocked. Good day to you, podcast. Good day, sir. Uh, this is something that I, I really kind of love about The Lord of the Rings, um, but it, it also kind of tugs at my heart in a weird way, uh, because I really think it's one of the least original and most important sagas of all time. Wow, that that is such. I know that it's a little bit bittersweet, right? Yeah, and I know that you say things a lot of times as sort of the introductory to your point, and sometimes I ask you to dive deep into your introductory to the point. I kind of want to know more about what you think about that, but I know that's not what you're trying to say right now. Well, so it is. It is okay. Really. Dive in. Thank you. Uh, so Tolkien, as we know, pulled from a lot of different sources and really was a scholar of. Uh, of history and was a scholar of storytelling. So he has some uh, some really important translations out there. He had done a lot of, obviously, a lot of reading and a lot of translating from different languages. There's a really good translation of Beowulf that he uh, that he actually created. Um, and so he had this vast, vast wealth of knowledge of uh, ancient mythologies and ancient histories. Uh, and so Lord of the Rings is really kind of an amalgamation of a lot of what he was studying uh, and trying to really coagulate it into a, a, a really consistent genre. Good word, coagulated. Oh, yeah. Anytime. Um, so the ring is kind of one of the most uh, material and, and obvious examples of this that we can trace through so, so many cultures and so many different mythologies. Uh, and that's uh, one of the major things that I wanted to talk about today on the podcast was different iterations of magic rings in folklore and in history. Love it. Let's do it. Yeah. Di let's dive right in. What do you got? So uh, the first one that I'm going to talk about is uh, the ring Andvaranat. 
which was the uh, the magic ring that is pretty central in the saga of the Volsungs. Now, this one is uh, is explicitly an inspiration for the Lord of the Rings. Tolkien has actually said that a lot of what he had done was from his study of the of the Volsung saga. Now, if you're not familiar with the saga of the Volsungs, it's uh, it's really a, a history of a a long lineage of Viking families. And uh, the the probably the easiest um, kind of mental image I can bring to you is Wagner's Ring Cycle or uh, the Looney Tunes version of Wagner's Ring Cycle with Bugs Bunny and the killed a wabbit, killed a wabbit. Um, <laughs> that's what we're well talking done. about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well done. Yeah. Killed a wabbit. Yeah, and Bugs Bunny in the Brunhilde costume. Oh, I love it. It's classic. I absolutely um, love definitely it. Definitely revisit it if you uh if you're if you've forgotten any of it. Just just a question. The Volsong, it was an epic poem. Was that written down by the Vikings? Or I because I think that might have because I'm pretty sure they were mostly pre-literate. I might be yeah. getting my history a little. Well, off. a lot of it is from uh, is from oral histories. I I actually it escapes me what the definitive version of it is. Um, it, who was the one who kind of put it all together? Right, right, right. We'll we'll put that in the notes somewhere. We'll figure that out. Um, but yeah, we we kind of trace the the lineage of these families, and a lot of it is you know larger than life, supernatural kind of things. You have a, a pregnancy that lasts six years, and then you know the baby's born and he's already grown up, you know, things that happen like that. There are dragons. There are, um, the God Loki is a huge part of it. All the I know Norse him from gods, Marvel. of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Loki is kind of one of the original figures in the story of the, the ring. Um, I believe he kind of secrets it away from a, a pal of his. And then, um, somehow it finds its way into the hands of the dragon Fafnir uh, and Fafnir guards the ring for a really long time before kind of the hero of one of the cycles of the Volsungs, because it's generations and generations. Uh, and this is Sigurd. Sigurd comes and tricks and kills Fafnir and takes the ring from him. And it's... Uh, right. Can, can I ask, what does the, does the ring have properties like the One Ring of Power? Like, what is, does it grant special abilities or... The ring is cursed. The ring is uh, not a ring. I wouldn't wear that. Yeah, it's a beautiful and uh, coveted item, but it is it carries a curse that will bring misfortune to anybody who wears it, and so it's it's blamed for a lot of the misfortune that comes to the Volsungs. Oh, do they know that? When does the hero know that when he gets it from the dragon? I don't know. Interesting. That's a good question. Interesting. So no, like super strength, flying, awesome Viking powers. Well, just yes, a curse. But I haven't done all of my research okay no worries yeah stop asking questions i will shut you're the showing hell up. how unprepared i am no you've you, you listen you are way more prepared than me to talk about this so yeah. so so this is just one of the many you know rings in uh in history and in culture but this is the one that Sulkin or that tolkien really cites as some of his inspiration um just to name a few others there's the ring of solomon which is one of the most famous rings this is solomon who was the the great king. Biblical. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and he Old had, Testament he dude. had a ring that 
It had a lot of magical properties. One of them, though, the most important was that it could actually harness and enslave demons to do your will. That's a great power. Yeah, so the idea is he used this ring, Solomon used this ring to harness and enslave demons to build the temple of Solomon. Oh, if Um, I could harness and enslave demons... Right? It'd be I, great. I totally would. But then the ring shows up in, you know, some medieval romances, uh, the Ring of Solomon, and it's got, you know, tons of properties. It does have invisibility. It can do a Green Lantern thing where it can kind of manifest. Uh, your will? Your like, will. Yeah. Uh, you can fly. You can talk to animals. It's got a little bit of everything. See, I'd kill a dragon for that ring. Yeah, it's a really I, good ring. Yeah, I would. I don't know if I'd kill a dragon for just a cursed ring. Oh, it's like a divine ring. I don't know. Okay. Um, so those are two of the most, um, most well-known ones. We also have magic rings that show up in Arthurian legend, both Yvaine and, uh, Sir Gareth carry a magic ring at some point. Ooh, uh, Yvaine, it... The Lion Knight. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and then magic rings actually show up in the Mabinogen, which is the great, like, Welsh cycle of poems that's kind of the, um, the coming together of all of their most important mythology. Right. So, I mean, the... And that one's an invisibility ring as well. So the the idea here is that Tolkien didn't invent an idea of a magic ring. No. He drew upon a long tradition, and it sounds like in Central and Western Europe. So it's a... This is the next thing I was going to say, is it sounds like it's a tradition in Central and Western Europe, but it's also shown up in the Thousand and One Nights. And even in history, you know, Genghis Khan was said to have had a magic ring that made him uh, stronger or prolonged his life. So this is something that is not just Western. It's not just European. It shows up all over the world. Interesting. So why do you think that is? So there's a few ideas that I have about this. And the first one is a very, you know, practical thing. A ring is definitely a status symbol. A ring is a sign of wealth. Um, and so it, it would be natural for storytellers to want to include something to tell you, you know, that this was a great king, so he had a magic ring, or this was a great, you know, person. Um, and then rings have a lot to do with, um, and depending on what finger you wear it on, it can kind of determine your status in life and uh, and what you do and who you are. So, like a, a an engagement or a wedding ring will obviously tell that you are in a romantic relationship. Or, you know, wearing a ring on a certain finger shows that you are a student, that you're someone who who studies uh, or is educated. And then wearing it on another finger shows that you're royalty. Right. And then back in the day, if you could, you know, afford a very expensive ring, you were clearly someone of stature. And still today. And if you're someone of stature back in the day, and I mean thousands of years ago, hundreds mm-hmm. of years ago... You're so someone, back in my day. Yeah. So back in your day, because you're immortal. Yeah. And um, if you can afford that, it goes to show that, hey, how can this person afford this gold thing or this jewel-encrusted thing? How are they so fortunate? Well, if they're fortunate, that means they must be blessed by some divine power. Right. Whether, that's, whether you're a monotheist and it's one God or whether you're a polytheist. And if you're blessed by this one God or by these many gods... The things that you have might have some inherent, uh, you know, magical properties. Like one of the things in how kings got to be worshipped in the ancient world was if a king says, you know what, I'd like to change the direction of this river. And then it was so. And then the king would say, am I not a god? If I can speak, 
and I can get a river diverted or a city built or a city leveled, have I not demonstrated that I have the power of a god? Right. And that's how kings in the ancient world came to be worshipped. When really it's just about slavery. Well, but, I mean, it's a, I mean, it's a little more complex than that. Right. You know, but, but no, not I that you're wrong. You're not, not that you're wrong. But so it's it stands to reason if Genghis Khan can conquer the world and has this ring, well, his ring probably has something like something's protecting him, yeah. right? Some sort of divine force is behind this great yeah. fortune that he has because we're not dealing with a time where they understand things like, um, you know, socioeconomic status. They don't understand things like cultural anthropology. You know, they're, they're not, they don't understand political systems and mandates by the will of the governed. You know, all of those ideas that we have now didn't exist then. Right. So, it makes sense to a coupling the power and the status with magic. Absolutely. And so it's, yeah, it's not a leap for a storyteller to want to include, uh, you know, something like that as, as kind of someone's magical token. Um, but there's a more kind of thematic level of, of rings that I, I definitely wanted to talk about in the context of the greater, um, the greater middle earth and the greater fantasy genre and that's uh, just the shape. It's, uh, you know, a ring is a circle. And what does a circle represent? But something that has no beginning and no end. Something that is eternal. Something that, uh, that is infinite. And so Great we, point. yeah, and we see iterated throughout Middle Earth and the Lord of the Rings, this theme of, of cyclical, uh, of the cyclical nature of the universe that, you know, we may have these many ages, but it's the same story being wrought over and over and over again. And I think a huge part of what the midnight myth is about, about why we do this podcast is because, you know, there's, there's some kind of sense that, that knowledge and that, uh, that philosophy is cyclical, you know, that good and evil are kind of this crest and trough, this rising and falling, uh, thing. And, and, you know, no matter how much we learn, we're going to continue the same cycles. Very, very, very good point. And, and tell the same stories. And the ring of power is itself an eternal piece. It cannot be destroyed. Mm. It cannot be lost. It cannot be forgotten. Until it comes full circle. Yeah, until it gets back from the fiery chasm from whence it came. Yeah. In which case it can be destroyed. And and often in in the Lord of the Rings, they use the term unmade rather than destroyed. Like we can't destroy the ring, but we can unmake it. We can unmake it. it, yeah. And so there's something about uh, Genesis, I think, that is that is powerful in that. It's like taking it back to the place that of its Genesis is how it's undone. Yeah. Can, can we talk a little bit about what the ring in the story actually does? Like, yeah. Um, so... Obviously, the ring was made by Sauron, and he is the evilest of the evil. He is the closest thing to a antichrist on Earth. Yeah, he's a big bad. Yeah, he is the big bad, and his life force is bound to it, and his life force is a pure evil, in which case, as long as the ring exists, Sauron cannot die. It's like a Holcrux before yeah, there are Holcruxes. Yeah, it's very Voldemortian. Yeah, yeah, I would say Holcruxes are very Saurian, but... Well, yes. Anyway, yes, I digress. I got also, snobby there. Yeah. No, think, it's all good. Yeah. I, you can have your high horse, but just remember Lord of the Rings is not original. Yeah, but neither is Harry Potter. Exactly. Yeah. I That's why I, I give no credence to people who say that 
that J.K. Rowling just stole from Lord of the Rings because I was like, don't you know that Lord of the Rings is all stolen? Of course, yeah, yeah. But I mean, the idea that we're we're discussing is that there may might be just a perfect story that's just being retold. Exactly. And there's nothing wrong with that. I agree. And people within that framework can do original things. Yeah. Because J.K. Rowling, to me, who wrote Harry Potter, is a freaking brilliant, oh, brilliant genius. genius. She did amazingly original things with a formula that she didn't invent. Yeah. But she's still great. Yeah, It's exactly. like a really good pop song. I yeah. think you and I totally agree. Yeah, anyway, anyway, we digress. The Ring does something that I think is pretty interesting. Um, it is intuitively linked. It's psychically, cosmically, spiritually linked to Sauron and Sauron's soul and Sauron's life force. And because that they are one... Uh, the ring is constantly trying to get its way back to Sauron as right. if it has agency. Yeah, as it has it a mind of its own. Think yeah. and act as an independent own agent. And because of that, it kind of gets to know the wearer and taps into that wearer's inner evil. You know, and I and the question that I had is because people that wear the ring eventually go mad, go evil, go crazy. People around the ring. Right. Sometimes I don't even wear it. In the Fellowship of the Ring, the character Boromir, the son of the steward of Gondor, the, the, the heir to run the biggest kingdom of men, goes mad at the presence of the ring. Yeah, and, and just being you know in the same vicinity. vicinity yeah, it. just being around it. So the ring, I think it finds those, those individuals and taps into their inner weaknesses yeah. and exploits it, knowing that that'll help get it back to Sauron faster. Right. And I see the ring kind of as a mirror, too. I, I mean, I, I definitely get the sense that it has some kind of agency or that it, you know, it, it kind of feels the, the tug or the homing device back to its owner. But I think more than anything, it's a mirror that's kind of held up to whoever the wearer or the bearer is. Because we, we talked about this before, how obviously Boromir is going to go nearly mad being close to it, how the elves kind of, and, and Gandalf even, are too afraid to even touch it because of what it would do, uh, because they know they have this, you know, a deep-seated desire for power, right. whether for good or evil. Even though they want it altruistically. Right. Yeah. But they know, you know, based on uh, the depths of their soul, that they can't handle that. Yeah. But the bearer of the ring... Frodo, the Hobbit, the really pure, and Sam as well, the really pure and simple folk who carry this ring are more or less untouched by its evil. And, you know, they're, they're not completely innocent. They're not completely untouched, but there is a resilience. Yeah, if we think of the people that we see that got to bear the ring or get close to the ring, you have Smeagol, who becomes Gollum and goes mad. Like instantly when he sees the ring, that happens to him. You have the entire fellowship of the ring, of which in the fellowship, only one character gets fallen into the ring's sort of uh, spiritual, psychological evil trap, which is Boromir. All of the right. other characters initially in that, in that phase of the story are able to either resist or fight or are tempted by it. Then you have uh, Bilbo, who doesn't want to give the ring up after having it for 60 years, not a short time, Yeah, but relatively unfazed. He can ultimately give it up. It's not easy for him. Yeah. 
it's not a simple thing, but he can do it. But it's it's more of just a sentimental attachment than, you know, an obsession the way that, you know, a Gollum character. Right. When he gives it up, there's almost a sense of relief when he finally gets to leave it. Then when he sees it again, when Frodo takes the ri- the ring to Rivendell and he sees that Bilbo's there, Bilbo kind of lunges for it, but then instantly is like ashamed and cries, like almost like, an addict reaching for a cigarette, yeah, like a cigarette a, smoker reaching for a cigarette being like, Oh God, what am I doing? Yeah. Just a quick aside. Uh, every time I watch the fellowship of the ring, the movie, I pause it on the exact moment where Bilbo reaches for the ring because I think it's amazing and hilarious. And oh, I just great. like look at that picture of Ian Holm for a little while. Yeah. That's well, it's, it's, it's Peter Jackson. Who's a genius. <laughs> who does a great job making really that good visual life. effects. And if you read it in the books, Peter Jackson nailed that description of what Bilbo does to a T, which is like he almost becomes like an evil Gollum. It's like a foreshadow of Gollum because he gets a little Gollum look where he's all bug eyed and his color goes all gray. Right. And he like lunges and hisses like an animal. Um, So then other than that, then you have Faramir, who in uh, the Two Towers, I believe it is, comes in contact with Frodo and the ring and almost falls to it, but doesn't. Mm-hmm. And then you have Frodo and Sam and Gollum. Gollum, who's insane, driven mad. Sam, who wears it for a brief time when he thinks Frodo is dead, who struggles a little bit but gives it right back. And then Frodo, who ultimately takes the ring to the precipice but can't destroy it. Right. He can he can take it there, but he can't actually destroy it. The reason I go through all that list is that a, it shows something about the races and their temperaments and their sure yeah. their sort of natural inclination How towards man temptation. Is kind of predisposed towards that, yeah. To temptation and predisposed to selfishness and short sighted thinking. The elves are like, we know better than to touch it. Gladriel almost, because oh, that's right. Frodo offers it to Gladriel. Right. And she like gets on this sort of like, oh, if I take this, I would rule the world. But she ultimately doesn't even come close to touching it. Right. Then there's Tom Bombadil, right, who gets to hold the ring in the Fellowship of the Ring. If you've never read the book, I don't even know how to describe Tom oh, Bombadil. He he's sings a fairy. A lot. Yeah. He's a singing fairy who's magical, <laughs> who kind of floats around. I remember being he's really a, upset. He's got a big that hat. They, I remember being really upset that they cut that from the movies. And now that I'm like an adult, I'm like, thank God. God, they cut that from the movie. That doesn't translate to that film. That would have been ridiculous. And he can hold the ring with no effect at all. But he's some like very like, he's like a forest fairy spirit that's yeah. not really part of the world who kind of gives Frodo advice on the start of his journey. Yeah. But barring that, every like, you know, when you say that it's a mirror, I think that you touch on something that because, but, you know, I might push back a little because a mirror, you see yourself. Right. This is more like a well. Oh. Right? Because you don't see yourself. You don't, like, Boromir's not aware he's going mad. hmm Right? He's not aware that the ring is doing that to him. You know, he still views himself fundamentally. Or just like a funhouse mirror. Yeah. You know, like. That reflects back your, your most devilish desires and, and it's a, it's sinister a, elements. Yes. And, and you see yourself. And it's you, but it's twisted and demented, and you may not understand why. And I think it's very poignant of Tolkien that it's those most susceptible to the ring's evil are the men, the people that actually exist in this world. Right. We, we are the ones most susceptible to 
ultimate power and his temptation. And in that way, the literature is its own kind of mirror that he holds up to mankind. Ooh. Good point. I really, yeah, yeah, yes. I was taking a sip of wine, and as she said <laughs> that, I almost wanted to high-five her because I thought that that brought that home. Do you, uh, do you want to touch a little bit on, on man and about um, kind of why Tolkien chose to set his story where he did and when he did in the, in the timeline? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, that's a great question. So we're at the end of what Tolkien would date as the third age, the beginning of the fourth age. Right. And we know that based on uh, the literature that Tolkien published either while he was living or was published posthumously, that he had written uh, just exhaustive, exhaustive histories of this land and mythologies and genealogies in the same way that, you know, Norse mythology had the Volsungs. He had mountains and mountains of literature about all the ages of this land. And yet, we're coming in during the Third Age. I think it's an important point because one, when you are crafting a world and you give it this rich history, whether you put that directly into the text or not, him as the, the author of it is aware of it and I think there is something to be said of um, mirroring the ages of humanity and that there's this ebb and flow. So if you're at the, the precipice of an end of an era and the beginning of a new, one that's symbolic that all errors end and all new errors begin, two, there's this idea that you are at the middle of a very long narrative. Right. So you have things that happened before that give meaning to the world. So yeah. you have you have Moria. Moria matters to the dwarves. I mentioned it in the last one because that was once a great dwarvish kingdom that collapsed. So what do the dwarves do? They go back and they reconquer it. And what happens to it again? It collapses again. Right. So you have things that matter so that a character that is now confronted in Moria and seeing it collapse like Gimli, it matters so much because of the symbolism of Moria. You have, uh, you know, just so many different little places where you go to some place in Middle Earth and that place meant something so long ago. And because of that, you have this rich, deep tradition. And so, yeah, I think that's significant. Yeah, I do too. I think there's something really lovely about choosing to, uh, choosing to present this world as it's really decaying, you know, as the, as the, gods and and heroes of antiquity are kind of falling apart and we see we see ruins we see things that you know were once uh you know full of splendor and are now kind of crumbling yeah you and, can't have a dungeon without a decay of history because why is that dungeon there right so why, why like how do you have a place in moria that's overridden by monsters and demons it had to have once not been that to become that right from a storytelling standpoint, having a history, having something that once was grounds and gives purpose. So like in the Fellowship of the Ring, when they're in the Watchtower of Amensun, and while they're there, the ring wraiths confront and find Frodo. Right. And Frodo, in in the movie, Aragorn comes and swashbuckles the way out of it, which makes total sense. But in the book, right. Frodo mentions the name Isildur. Who cut the ring off. And in this area, with this sort of magic significance, the ring wraiths are legitimately frightened by the name 
of Isildur and have to flee. So you have these sort of uh, these areas with power, with presence that matter that only happens if you place it in a particular point in time and have the things that happened before. And similarly, we can uh, assume the things that will happen after matter. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really astute. And, uh, you know, I'm just thinking of one uh, really powerful image and I'm, I'm especially, you know, picturing it because of the um, the kind of backstory that we get in the in the film of the Fellowship of the Ring, but that moment of a Sildor standing over the the fires of Mount Doom, and he's able to uh, destroy the ring, and he he doesn't because he he wants to keep it for himself. Uh, and then fast forward to you know a couple movies later, a couple books later, and Frodo is standing over the fires of Mount Doom and wants to throw it in, but can't because he he really does have an attachment to it. And that repetition, uh, that repetition of the mistakes of the past, I think, uh, is really important. And it harps again on that theme of, you know, history being cyclical and us always kind of coming back to the same moment and hopefully learning something and hopefully beginning a new age, but maybe just making the same mistakes. Yeah. And we only get that because we're here. We're here at, at the end. Yep. And, you know, just another point that I think Tolkien, the scholar, understood is, um, you know, in any society that's at a precipice, at a turning point, an inflection point, it will always look back at the greatness that was and try to say we should hearken back to this era and time where we were more pure and more great. And I'll, I'll give a concrete historical example yeah, you look like you want to say something. Oh, no, no, go ahead. Um, so in Egypt, ancient Egypt, it is divided into three different dynastic kingdoms, the Old Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom, and the New Kingdom. And those are characterized with two intermediate periods between them. And that's when Egypt, ancient Egypt was, effecti- it was effectively, pardon me, two states, Upper and Lower Egypt, when it's the Old Kingdom, Middle Kingdom, or New Kingdom, it's when they're, both those states are united under one king. Right, okay. The intermediate periods are when that's not the case. You have two kings. And after the old kingdom collapsed, that's when the pyramids were built. Every kingdom afterwards, with any uh, very powerful and well-organized and well-functioning state, would always hearken back to the old kingdom, meaning that there's an idea of Egyptianness that we lost. And now we need to regain it because there was this intermediate period. Well, now we need in this new kingdom be able to regain this Egyptianness that decayed and destroyed. And you get the sense in Middle Earth that a lot of these these characters and a lot of these societies are going through that again with reclaim. So, like the new era is reclaiming the old era because in the yeah. old era there was a king of Gondor that was united the world of men that went away if they're in the intermediate period where there's a power vacuum and Gondor geographically um, minus Turith, their capital geographically is right next to Mordor. So Mordor doesn't have a check on its authority. The only thing that can stop Mordor, the land of Sauron, the land of evil from covering middle earth with a second darkness is a kingdom of men. The only way that happens if they unite under one banner 
and hearken back to the greatness of the previous era and age. That is so interesting because of how many times we've seen uh, that kind of nostalgia play out as a political tool uh, and how we're kind of seeing it play out today. It's a very different kind of case. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they were trying to make Middle Earth great again, I suppose. Yeah. And, um, you know, and you, you, I mean, you get the sense that Aragorn, the king, he's not a propagandist. Right. Right. Like it, it's his birthright and it's the time for him to, to take it. You get the sense that it's destiny. Um, but it plays upon this well conceived notion of human history that has existed. I mean, as soon as in, in another context in, you know, medieval Western Europe, there was the collapse of the Roman Empire. Well, as soon yeah. as this dude named Charlemagne reorganized it into kingdoms, he called his kingdom Rome. And called himself the Holy Roman Emperor. Exactly. Uh, Charlemagne also had a magic ring. Of course he did. Why wouldn't he? Yeah. How do you form the Holy Roman Empire without a magic ring? Exactly. You just can't. It's not allowed. Yeah, it made the dead body of his girlfriend incorruptible. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, totally happened. Yeah, absolutely. Well, nobody wants your girlfriend's dead body to be corrupted. Yeah, sure. Right? That makes total sense. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah, yeah, so, I mean... It, it, so, it, in other words, Tolkien just did these amazing things that we get to unpack here. I think, like, yeah. even compa- uh, also with our last episode about Lord of the Rings, we haven't scratched the fucking surface. Not at all. Like, we really are at all stuff that that you could get to from one or two readings of the books, watching the movies, and doing some fucking Googling. Yeah. But what has been really exciting about recording these past two episodes is seeing the... Uh, seeing the power and the uh just the the longevity of those those masterful themes that really resonate not just through storytelling but through our own lives so looking at the uh the cyclical nature of the universe looking at the uh kind of upheaval of good versus evil you know it just keeps coming back and we have to keep fighting and we started our last episode by asking the question does fantasy matter right and of course, I would argue that it does in storytelling, but I'd also argue that it it gives us a way to to process complexity and to really break down what's happening in our world, what has happened in our history, in a way that that is uh, that's joyful and and escapist, and and really helps us to kind of understand our world better. Yeah, uh, drop the mic, but they're on stands. That's our new hashtag. Yeah, drop the mic, but they're on stance. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree with more. Can we? Can we maybe touch on legacy? Yeah, let's. Is that, let's is that okay? Touch on can, legacy. I think we should. We should definitely raise a glass to a couple of folks, uh, namely Peter Jackson, Clink, Clink. That was our Clink. Do you want to talk a little bit about Peter Jackson? Yeah, I was just drinking my wine. Um, so absolutely, I want to touch on Peter Jackson, and I want to touch on what. Peter Jackson did for Lord of the Rings. And I want to hearken back. If you guys remember, maybe you weren't around, um, you know, in the eighties, there was a major, major scare that Satanism was taking hold of kids. The satanic panic, the satanic panic. It was a mass hysteria. And part of that panic had to deal with people playing Dungeons and Dragons. And the idea was, oh my God, my son or daughter goes to this cult 
in which the dungeon master tells them what to do and how to do it, and they have to obey the rules of the dungeon master at all times, and the dungeon master is clearly code for a satanic cult. Well, yeah. Yeah, but the reason why I start Legacy with there is that Dungeons & Dragons as a game came up with, um, I forget the guys or gals that invented it, and uh, they just wanted to find a way to play Lord of the Rings, turn Lord of the Rings into a game. Yeah. And they came up with what's called now role-playing games, also called RPGs, which is a just amazing form of gaming that exists both in tabletop, meaning you play it on a table, and virtual, which I mean you play it in a, in a video game. Yeah, so we have today, we have Skyrim, we have uh, World of Warcraft, all kinds of things that, yeah, we that could really go come out of the legacy of Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah, Dragon Age. Um, so the reason why when I start my praise with uh, Dragon Age, I'm sorry, with Peter Jackson, the reason why I start the 80s with the Satanic Panic, um, what happened at that time, um, eventually the Satanic Panic kind of calms down Peter Jackson gets the contract to make the movies of Lord of the Rings. And what he did was he commercialized Lord of the Rings. And I don't say that as a negativism. Usually Not at all. in sort of like, you know, left-wing hipster culture, the idea of commercializing something is usually intuitively bad. But in this case, I'd say it's good because hobbits became a commonplace thing. Wizards yeah. weren't satanic things. They were just what Gandalf was. And when kids went to play Dungeons and Dragons and maybe their parents are like, what are you doing? They would just say, oh, I'm just playing Lord of the Rings. So he took something that was this very fringe, not understood world, this world of fantasy, this world that was coupled in mainstream media with Satanism. And he made it accessible so other people could walk into it. Other people could see it and realize that there's a, there's nothing satanic about it. B, there's nothing wrong with it. And C, uh, who doesn't want to pretend that, like they're Aragorn or Gimli or Legolas? Or Arwen or Eowyn, my girl. Absolutely. Uh, I am no man. I am no man. Yeah. Uh, just to get some context to that, in case you haven't seen, uh, she kills one of the Ringwraiths. The they Witch are the King. The Nazgul, the Lich King, like the second to, to Sauron's army who says... No man can kill me. In a very Macbethian type type way, he says, no man can kill me. And she says, I am no man. And stabs the fucker in the face and kills him. Oh, it's so good. It's She's really, my really good. Character. Yeah, it's really, really good. Well, everything about Rohan is the best, but I, I, I digress. So my point is this. When Peter Jackson took on the ability to make Lord of the Rings, I think it was, you know, 98, I think is when he started filming it was maybe 2000 when the first movie came out. That I, I sounds could, right. I could be off on those dates. Fact check me. Tweet yeah, me. Internet. It might be a little bit later. Um, you know, we've been drinking wine, so I could be a little off there. But what he did to mainstreamize the the world of fantasy, I think for for a kid that used to get his ass kicked for playing Dungeons and Dragons, made it so much more normal, so much more understandable, so much more accessible, so much sexier. And so, yeah, so much, like so much cooler yeah. too, you know, cool and sexy. And for that, even though that some will argue and some will say that Peter Jackson kind of bastardized the spirit of the books. And to those people, I would say, you're not factually wrong. He did thematically change it, but what he did was make, make it so that 
if I want to go see this movie with my mom, I can, and we'd both enjoy it. Yeah, and he opened a door, too, for nerds like us um, to really dig further and further. I don't think I would have, you know, read The Silmarillion if I hadn't, you know, gotten obsessed with those movies. Obviously, I had been, you know, primed with The Hobbit, but those movies really opened the door to take me further into the world of Tolkien. Right, and so... And also, they're way sexier than the uh, animated versions, which are great. I mean, they're terrible, but they're great. But they're not sexy. So they're not sexy, great, but terrible. Yep. Got it. Um, other things. Uh, because of Tolkien, there are, I don't know, tens of thousands of other fantasy novels within that genre. Yeah. I mean, Game of Thrones is one of the most popular shows on TV now and borrows greatly from from that catalog. Yeah, um, and, and the Song of Ice and Fire, the books that inspired the TV show, yeah, equally like borrow very much uh, from Tolkien and and do just an amazing job of taking that structure, taking a hey, let's do a society that's on the precipice with a rich history that has even lore that's forgotten. Let's yeah, put a, old gods, old gods in the new. Old Valeria. Yeah. Um, dragons don't exist. Now they do. Magic is gone, but it comes back. And the threat of, of winter, the threat of a new darkness. The threat of darkness spreading the new land um, with the White Walkers and the Night King. Yeah. Very, very Tolkien-y. Uh, very different, but also very much part of that. And then we talk about Harry Potter of all course, the time. Yeah, Harry, Harry Potter. Potter is part of the legacy. You know, my favorite franchise it has so many uh, touchstones that it shares with Lord of the Rings, but I think that makes it stronger too. You know, the resurgence of Voldemort, who's been stripped from his body, uh, his life force is tied to objects. It even has a magic ring. Yep. Yeah. You know, um, so so much of the legacy of Lord of the Rings in terms of storytelling, in terms of the, the people that it touches mm-hmm. and touch that, that inspires them to go out and do different and, and awesome things in the world... And not just storytellers, like I'm not a storyteller, you know, my, but just for, for myself, what Lord of the Rings has meant for me, I think, gets us back to that question, does fantasy matter? You know, in the last episode, I said, I don't know if we've proven it. I think we've proven it beyond a reasonable doubt in this one. Yeah, and yeah, when I say proven, I mean like, like philosophically, logically, like irrefutable, does fantasy matter, cosmically, yep. I would say a jury of our peers would probably say guilty. It matters. Oh, that's a hint to an episode coming soon. Ooh. Um, but yeah, I, man, and I still think there's so much we're leaving on the table here. Like we didn't, mm-hmm. we didn't dive deep into hobbits, into, into the race of men, into their history, into and how, their future and their future and how that they came to play. Uh, we scratched the surface on the role of wizards. We barely, if at all talked about, Orcs, uh, their role. And eagles. But There's so much more we could talk about. But you know what that means? You know, someday we're just going to have to revisit Middle Earth. Absolutely. In the context of, you know, the rest of the the discussions that we have here about universal themes and storytelling. I think there's nothing to be done but to to continue visiting. Yeah. So hit me. You got some final thoughts? Uh, I, I feel pretty good. I think... Uh, I think Lord of the Rings has proven to be a time-tested and incredibly influential work, and it never ceases to amaze me how totally unoriginal it is. Yeah, you know, are you saying that as a negative? 
Not at all. Okay. You know, I, uh, I really have come to... Because there's, there's a lot of originality in it. There is. Um, but that's one of the things I think that's most amazing about it is that it can simultaneously be uh, pulled from, you know, pulled almost word for word from, from pieces of mythology and history and yet can do so in such a, uh, such a, a reinvented kind of way that it can become a genre-defining work. And that, I think, is why I'm here. That's why I'm here doing this podcast is because I believe in the power of, of the universal and Lord of the Rings is, is proof. Right. Very, very cool. Yeah. Uh, quick Midnight Myth Boomerang. Do it. Favorite character and why? Eowyn. Uh, because I am a staunch feminist and I love that even in a world of pretty much only men, one of the most badass characters in that whole saga is a lady and she fucking stabs a guy in his face and does so, like I said, in a Macbethian fashion. Right on. Yeah, I love her. That's, yeah. I mean, she's amazing and fantastic. Interesting that you picked a character that is only in two out of the three books. Yeah. Very interesting. And I there. love Hobbits too. Like, like my instinct is to pick Pippin, but like Eowyn, Eowyn is my girl. Awesome. Yeah. You want to know mine? Yeah, I want to know yours. Go ahead. Mine is very, very linked. I know who it is. King Theoden. Theoden. Yeah, King Theoden is my favorite character. Rohan is the best. It, it, Rohan is the best. Um, I've been thinking about writing a, a blog post just on Rohan and its history and how much that I love Rohan. But I'd say King Theoden, also uh, a member of the Kingdom of Rohan, um, so very much a link to your favorite character. I like his stoicism. I like that King Theoden is, he realizes that, you know, he is, when he goes to the answer the call for Gondor, he knows he's going to his death. He doesn't pretend it. He, he doesn't hide from it. Yeah. But he says, you know what? Rohan and Gondor have a historical and ancestral bond. And that bond will not be broken, even if that means the complete destruction of myself and all of my people. Ugh. And he dies in that battle. He has no, he doesn't pretend like he's going to live. He dies in that battle. However, that battle is not winnable without Rohan there. Right. Um, I love his stubbornness. I love that it takes him like a really long time to see other people's point of view, but he can do that. He doesn't just sit there and say, I'm king and that's it. Like he doesn't like Gondor, doesn't want to help them, but ultimately realizes that's the right thing to do. He ultimately realizes that Aragorn is really the true king of men, right. not him. And instead of being threatened by that, he's okay with it. And uh, I, I love that he his whole story is being ripped from being his mind being poisoned by Saruman. I know. And I right? love that he has to like rip with that and then deal with the death of his son. And though he's not a major character. He's my favorite by yeah, far. Yeah, he's a really good man and a good character. I think he's a great choice. Second is Gimli. Yeah. Very, very close second. But I <laughs> talked about him last week. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, neither of us chose a hobbit. No. Even though I am a hobbit and a witch, a hobbit witch. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I think, are we, no, no boomerangs, nothing else? No, I think we're at time. You want to play a game? I always want to play a game. Yeah. 
All right, so we'll go to the game. Here at the Midnight Myth, our conversations tend to get heavy and they tend to get real sometimes. So to lighten the mood, we like to play a little game at the end of the, the episode. We encourage you guys to play along. You can hit us up on Twitter at, at Midnight Myth. You, at the Midnight Myth. I, could you do the where we are? Because you're just so much better at it than me. Yeah, we would love you guys to play along at home. So please hit us up on Twitter at the Midnight Myth. Uh, or on Facebook, just search the Midnight Myth Podcast. Or drop us a line on the website, www.midnightmyth.com. Or check us out on YouTube, the Midnight Myth Podcast, and send us your responses. Sure. And uh, just another thing before we hop into the game. Um, if you guys have any ideas for topics, if you guys have any feedback or thoughts, something that maybe seemed pretty obvious to you but we missed, um, hit us up so we can add it into the show. We, we would love to engage with you. Yeah, we would love to hear from you. Um, right. So, the game. Here is the premise. You have just cleared an entire dungeon full of enemies. Now, you got to the treasure chest, because every dungeon has a treasure chest, and in it, you find a magical item. What is the magical item, and what power does it give you? And you're on. Oh, I'm first? I'll go first. You go first. All right, so I'm going to find a magical battle axe. Okay. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm going to find, because if I'm in a, the Dungeons & Dragons, I'm fighting with an axe. Yeah. Because that's just what I want to do, right? So right. I, have, I have a magical battle axe, and it is a magical battle axe that gives me super speed. So that while I have this battle axe, I am like flash level fast. So I can just <laughs> all the orcs, all the goblins, all the trolls, I can just like slice them down into size. Now, here's the other caveat with my speed battle axe. Yeah. It's also evil. Oh, what? It was forged in the evil fires and brings about great power to the wielder. But that power fundamentally corrupts. And, I, and then there's going to be a huge story about what this battle axe does to my psyche. And eventually I have to discard it. Wow. I like the I like the backstory there. Yeah. That's great. And you didn't just make it all powerful. You gave it some, some stakes. Absolutely. I like that a yeah. lot. Yeah, yeah. My magical. Yeah. I didn't come up with a name with the battle axe. So if you guys got an say, idea. Do you have a name for it? I don't. It? If anyone out there wants to name my battle axe, hit me up on Twitter. I want yeah. to know what that name should be. I love it. Uh, so my turn, I guess. All right. So I've just cleared the dungeon full of goblins and orcs and demons. Meanings and uh, jerky faces. Yeah. And there's the jewel-encrusted treasure chest. And I open the creaky jewel-encrusted treasure chest. And there's a gold watch. Because I'm really into wearables. Uh, and I don't want anything that's too heavy on my journey or, you know, I will have to leave behind. And uh, so there on my on my watch has the power to control uh, uh, organisms that contain cellulose. So it can... I have no idea what cellulose is. It's, Cells? Uh, it, it's part of plants. So it has like uh, the ability to communicate and control plants. That's so yeah. amazing. So if I'm like in a forest, 
my watch could like make the, you know, the trees grow really fast or the branches come and wrap up my enemies. But also if I'm like stranded, uh, I can use it to like isolate the non-poisonous plants and leaves that I could eat. That is so amazing. Yeah. You know, I with, love nature. With my battle axe and your watch, we could clear any dungeon. Sure could. Any dungeon, easily. I really didn't think about the fact that most dungeons are not going to have plant life in them, but... Uh, moss? There can be some... Yeah, there might be moss. Yeah, absolutely. Weeds? Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, to- weeds? Yeah, totally. Yeah, so you, you, you never know. They would definitely help. And you have to clear the forest, too, so you have to go through the forest. It's true. To get to the dungeon. Yeah. So it would be so many useful applications for that. I would have bet hard money you would have had a cloak. I don't know why. I just thought, oh, she's going to have a magical cloak. That's really funny. Yeah, I would have I would bet. never have said that. Yeah, I don't know why. I just in see a million you. years. I see you in, with a magical cloak putting that on and getting some like superpower. Well, now I do too. Yeah. Oh, that's a pretty picture. Yeah. You with mm. a magical clo- cloak of whatever. Yeah. Cellulose cloak. What would your magic item be, and what power would it give you? We want to know. And what's its name? Yeah, and if, uh, yeah, give us its name. Give us a backstory. If you're an artist, draw us a sketch. Oh, that'd be amazing. Yeah, that'd be super cool. Draw us a sketch of your, or if you got an idea of what my battle axe of flash power, you know, (laughs) name should be, let me know. All right. Guys, we love you. Thank you for listening. Please drop us a line on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, the website, wherever you can. Yeah. And if you're enjoying what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us get out there. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your enemies. Yeah, until next time, be kind. Be kind.